Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you've got your Bible, let's open up to Genesis chapter 37, and we're going to look at the story of Joseph today, which we're not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to assume that you have some knowledge of it, but we're going to read a lot of it. Um, Again, this whole series, the idea is all of us at times in life are going to experience hardship, we're going to experience really negative emotions, uh, whether that comes from something somebody else does to us or something we do ourselves. are just circumstances of life. And in the moment, we're, we're, we want to hide, which is not necessarily a bad uh, desire to hide, to get away from the pain of life. But where do we hide? And there's really only one right answer is to hide in Christ. Um, but that is usually not our first reaction. So going to look at story of Joseph, okay? And he goes through maybe more human hardships than anybody we've looked at thus far, okay? He's going to be beaten by his brothers, He's going to be accused by his authorities, and he's going to be forgotten by his friends. All right, so let's start out looking at him being beaten by his brothers. And, and really, this is just any time you suffer any type of hatred. Okay, so uh, Genesis chapter 37, verse 3. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. So uh, Jacob has 12 sons, but Joseph is his favorite, and We've already seen this in other family dynamics. When you play favorites with your children, it doesn't work out well. Okay? So don't do it. Um, verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and to my sheaf rose up, and and lo, my sheaf rose up, and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now, just pause. Uh, Joseph is one of those characters when you read his story in the Bible, and he has a lot of biographical information. At times, he seems almost sinless. I mean, most Bible characters, you get to see a lot of their flaws. You don't see as much in Joseph. But here in the very beginning of the story, you do. Okay? Now, um, this first time, his brothers already hate him. He's a younger brother. We're going to see that in many ways his dad kind of promotes him and makes him like a chief over the other brothers. They already hate him. He has this dream that seems like a prophecy. Hey, one day I'm going to be the ruler. And he just goes and shares it with the brothers naively. Listen, the best thing that you can say about Joseph at this point is that he's stupid, okay? If you want to say, well, I don't think he was sinful here, fine. He was a dummy, all right? But it's highly more likely, because he comes off as a pretty intelligent guy, there there was some pride there, right? He was a little bit of a snob. He liked being the favorite child, and he liked another opportunity to kind of rub it in his brother's faces. You know what? It's not just I'm daddy's favorite kid. I'm actually God's favorite kid, and uh, one day I'm going to get to officially be all your bosses, so I just want to let you know about it, all right? But let's try to give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say, no, that's not what's going on. At this point, he's just stupid. Well, the next time, I don't think we can give him that excuse. Look at verse 9. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. 
He related it to his father and to his brother. So maybe really it's a combination of pride and stupidity. Often those two things seem to go together. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? So daddy doesn't like it either. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Jacob at least says, maybe there's something to this. I'll think about it. Um, Verse 12, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. So see, they're more like kind of the worker boys of the family. Israel said to Joseph, he's treating him like a manager, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. This is kind of another side note in parenting. Uh, As parents, you have multiple kids. You are not going to be able to be fully aware of everything going on with your children. But you ought to try your best to be as dialed into the dynamics between your children as you can. And Jacob seems oblivious. I mean, 11 brothers hate Joseph. Certainly at least 10 of them do. Okay, Maybe it comes out that Benjamin doesn't really hate him. But 10 of the brothers really seem to hate Joseph. And Dad just seems oblivious. Hey, they're out there in the middle of nowhere pasturing the flock. Won't you go check on them? I mean, in some sense, he's setting Joseph up for disaster. Um, Verse 14, Then he said to him, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering the field. And the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now just pause here for a second. The main theme this morning is not about the sovereignty of God. (laughs) But it is like this underflowing current under this story that's super important. Notice this. He goes to where his father had said he thought they were passing the flock and they're not there. And then there just happens to be a man, a stranger kind of passing by. He says, hey, you seen my brothers? And he says, you know what? I actually just happened to kind of overhear. They said they were going to Dothan. What if that had never happened? Joseph would have never found them. This whole story would have never happened. So even in the worst tragedies in our life, it's so helpful to remember God is behind the scenes writing a story. And for his people, it's always a good story in the end. It might be really painful in the middle, but it's always good by the end. And that's part of what can help us get through the hardest times. So verse 18, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. That's how much they hated him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So Reuben had this desire to save him. It was more about Reuben was trying to gain some favor with daddy. It's not because he loved Joseph so much. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and they threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. Now just, again, pause. I want you to try to put yourself in this story, feel the emotion of it. Imagine what it's like, okay? You're the 11th child of 12 brothers. You come to visit your brothers, and they literally beat you up, probably strip you naked, throw you into an empty well, very painful. And then you can just hear them at the top of the well sitting down to have a meal, like everything's normal. I mean, just the hatred. 
How terrible that would feel. How lonely that would feel. Okay? And keep your finger here in chapter 37. We're coming right back. But flip over to chapter 42. This is later in the story where by God's grace the brothers are repenting. Hey, we'll probably look at that next week. But chapter 42, skip down to verse 21. This is the brothers talking to each other. Then they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore this distress has come upon us. So this gives us a little insight into what was actually going on. Joseph's at the bottom of the pit begging. Guys, I'm, I'm sorry I've been a snob. Please have mercy. I won't tell Dad. We'll let this whole thing go. And they just ignore him. Right? Pass the bread. At this point, it seems like their plan, we're not going to kill him with our own hands. We're just going to let him starve to death. It's almost worse. Right? Because then they could say, well, technically we didn't kill him. I mean, this is really, in some sense, evil incarnate. So back to chapter 37. I'll pick up where we left off, verse 25. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Again, this doesn't have anything to do with compassion. To be sold into slavery back then was close to a death sentence. This is about, if we're going to kill him, let's at least get some money out of it. I mean, they're just utterly self-centered. I mean, some of us may have grown up in some rough families. This one seems to take the cake, does it not? Verse 28, Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit. Again, just pause. As I try to kind of put myself in the shoes of Joseph, I wonder what he must thought when he probably heard some kind of voices or something. And then a rope comes down. I wonder if his hope started to spring up. Maybe somebody's passing by and they don't want to get caught, so now they're going to show mercy. And as he's coming up, and then it dawns on him what's happening. These are slave traders. It's not getting better. It's about to get worse. And they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus, they brought Joseph into Egypt. Okay. Um, Put yourself in his shoes. Maybe you're a little smug. Maybe you're a little arrogant. He's a a teenager at this point. Um, You're about to be refined. Not not in a very pleasant way. Again, this is another side note, but it's an important one. God is so committed to the character development of His people that He is willing and able to use terribly hard and painful circumstances to bring refinement to our soul. That's how committed he is to our holiness. Again, total side note. When you're in the midst of pain, when you're in the midst of suffering, one of the best things that you can do is stop and say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? (laughs) Right? Because I'd like to learn the lesson as quick as possible so I can get out of this pain and suffering. Now, listen, it doesn't always work that way, right? But sometimes it does. Sometimes there is something the Lord is trying to say to you and do to you, and the quicker you can learn the lesson, in some sense, the quicker the suffering can be over. But the more you harden your heart and become stubborn in your mind, the more the pain goes on because God is so committed to our sanctification. Don't we see an element of that in our own parenting with our children? 
if you won't learn the lesson that I'm trying to teach you that's important because I love you, I'll continue to increase the consequences until you submit. That's just normal parenting. It comes from the heart of God. Okay? Um, now, this story up until this point, it never says that Joseph prayed. <laughs> but it's highly likely that he did pray. But we don't know. Maybe he didn't pray. But, he, but here's the point that I want us to see. Most of the time, even, even listen, the most godly, high-character, mature one of us, when hardship comes in life, there is a visceral reaction that says, where are you, God? Why are you doing this to me? Right? I was talking to a friend recently, somebody very godly, very wise, very mature, and he was going through a hardship in his life, and he said... I, before I could even think, it was like my heart was crying out, why are you doing this to me, God? Why am I suffering this way? And when it seems like either God is silent, God is distant, we start to assume a lot of negative things. Okay? And almost certainly Joseph is wrestling with that. But again, we've got to see God's working behind the scenes. He's probably 65 miles away from home at this point, beaten up, stripped naked, thought he was going to die, and now he's been sold into slavery. It's like it just keeps going from worse to worse to worse. Now, he's hated, he's beaten up. Now let's look at, he's going to be accused. Flip over to chapter 39. Let's start in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph. Now, pause. What, what does that mean, the Lord was with Joseph? Right? If we believe that God is omnipresent, God is everywhere... And what does it mean that God is with somebody? Well, it means He's with them in a special way. He's with them in some type of obvious, manifest way. That He's with them to bless them, to smile upon them, to help them. And don't you see that? I mean, part of what we're going to see in the life of Joseph is it is a roller coaster ride. Because, yes, he got sold into slavery, but this is the best kind of slavery. He's not out there getting flogged and having to build the pyramids, right? He's a house servant inside. I don't think they had air conditioning back then, but if they did, that's the kind of household he's working in. For a rich, elite man, he's in a privileged position even in his slavery. God's blessing him. God's taking care of him. There's a sense of special protection and provision. Verse 2, the Lord was with him, so he became a successful man. God was blessing everything he touched. It's like it all turned to gold. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him. So even this pagan Egyptian can say, something's unique about this guy. It's like the hand of a divine being is blessing everything he touches. And how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him an overseer made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did... With him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. 
There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me, and he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Now, so many times when we are suffering, and especially when we are suffering unjustly, it becomes an excuse for sin in our mind, does it not? I have had a really terrible week with the kids, and my husband has been out of town, not here to help me. I deserve a couple extra glasses of wine tonight. Or when he gets home, I deserve to be like off all weekend. I'm doing nothing. Or... My wife has been very cold and distant and not attentive, and so a little bit of pornography is not going to hurt anybody. Or whatever it is you struggle with. We are experts at taking the hardship in our life and making it an excuse for sin. Kind of like, I deserve this. And again, try to put yourself in the shoes of a teenage boy who's been beaten up, cast into slavery, and he's there, and this older woman is approaching him, sexually aggressive, he, he is seemingly a perfect response on how to handle it. No. No, because it's not right at the human level. My master's been good to me. You're his wife, so no at the human level. And no at the divine level. I can't sin against God. This wouldn't just be a sin against another man. It'd be a sin against God. And he's like, I'm going to do my best to not even be with you, right? This is, this is plucking out the eye that causes you to stumble. Notice her. She's quite the seductress. It seems like at some point, verse 10, she said, just come in here and just lie down beside me. All right? And most of us can probably go back to pre-marriage days and dating. Let's just lay on the couch and watch a movie. Nothing will happen. And that probably never ended well, right? Okay? That didn't just start in the 20th century. Okay? Just come lie down with me. And she says, no, no, no. And then it seems like probably she set it up one day. All the servants are outside. Okay? He comes in. She grabs him and he literally runs out and, you know, runs out of his cloak. He's being righteous. God's with him. Surely he should be blessed by this. Well, let's see what happens. Verse 16. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. Now just pause. You are an elite Egyptian master and a slave supposedly has attempted rape on your wife. How might you think you would respond? It's not a trick question. What's the first? Execution. Absolutely, right? I have the power. He's a slave. I'll kill him. That's not what he's going to do. And we don't know for sure, but almost certainly the reason is he probably knows his wife a little bit. And he realizes how faithful Joseph has been this whole time. So in some sense, Joseph's integrity is working for him. Look at what he's going to do. Verse 20. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail. And it doesn't sound like he puts him like into the state penitentiary. He puts him into one of those like, you know, club med prisons, right? The place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in jail. So he seems to be in maybe a nicer prison. We don't have total speculation. I don't know. 
But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made him prosper. Do verses 22 and 23 remind you of anything? What's it sound like? It sounds like exactly what happened in Potiphar's household, right? God was with him. Everything he touched turned to gold. And so the master said, you're in charge. (laughs) I'm taking a vacation. Listen, Joseph's life, and we have the benefit of hindsight, is a roller coaster ride, is it not? High highs, I'm daddy's favorite. Low lows, my brothers are trying to kill me. I'm the most well-treated slave in the universe. I'm falsely accused and thrown into prison. But now I'm an exalted prisoner. Why am I pointing this out? Our lives as well will be a roller coaster ride till the day we die. We might not have as many pits and peaks as Joseph did, right? The incline might not be quite as steep. But most of us, myself included, guys, we're so fickle, right? We can have the greatest week of our life, answer prayers, everything's great in our marriage, great with our kids, great with business, great with everything. And then like one bad thing happens on a Saturday, we get a flat tire or something, and we can be like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my life? We can be so fickle. And frail and fragile. And we need to have a little bit better perspective. Just because one little thing goes wrong doesn't mean God's abandoned me. He's been falsely accused, but there's no sign that Joseph starts accusing God. There's no sense of bitterness. There's no sense of abandonment. And look, this is a key verse. Look back to uh, verse 21. I've got the New American Standard. So just read along with me if you've got your Bible there. What the Lord... Excuse me, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness. Now, where the New American Standard says kindness, does anybody have a different translation or a different word? Steadfast love. Okay, steadfast love. This is the old Hebrew word hesed. It's God's covenant love. It's really a hard time translating into English because so much is packed into it. It says God's covenant-making, covenant-keeping love. Now, we don't know for sure, but this is the first time this word has been used with Joseph. And in a sense, it's like when he's literally at the bottom, at the worst, far from home, far from family, far from seeming every provision. I'm, I'm now falsely accused. I'm in this prison, probably left here to rot and die. It's like he, he experiences God's goodness, God's nearness, God's presence, God's blessing, God's love. Okay, but... Right? It's not like, and then he lived happily ever after. He's still got to go on living in this sinful, fallen planet. So, chapter 40. Now he's going to be forgotten. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. 
Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were confined in the jail both had a dream the same night, each man his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell it to me, please. Side note. When he had the dreams... In chapter 37, there was no other, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there's no record that he gave credit to God for the dream, for understanding it. And now he's like, hey, God's the one who gives interpretations. The refinement that God wanted to do in his soul out of some of his arrogance, some of his snobbery, it seems like it's happening. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Now, this series, one of the things we've looked at repeatedly is there's a sinful way to take matters into your own hands. Okay? But there's, there, there are legitimate ways to try to uh, fight for yourself. And this is legitimate. He's like, listen, I believe you're going to be restored to Pharaoh in three days, and would you do me a favor? Would you just mention me? Just mention that I'm down here, I'm a nice guy, and I can interpret dreams. God gives me that. Please get me out of here. Okay? This is legitimate. There's nothing sinful in this, and yet it's not going to work. Skip down to verse 20. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, just like Joseph had said, and put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So he's been hated, he's been beaten, he's been falsely accused, and now he's just forgotten. And this is probably the one that we can identify with the most, right, in our 21st century luxurious lives. There's time we just feel left out. We feel forgotten by people, not prioritized the way that we should, maybe by friends and family. And Joseph is suffering all of this and much more. Okay? Guys, so much of real practical godliness is about patience. You know, there's a phrase in the Old Testament that comes out a lot, waiting upon the Lord. And sometimes we study that and like, I wonder what that means. It sounds really mysterious and esoteric. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord? And a lot of times, you know what it literally means? Wait upon the Lord. Be in a hard circumstance, a boring circumstance, a circumstance you don't necessarily enjoy, but you trust the goodness of God even though you can't see it, taste it, feel it, and you say, I'm just going to sit and wait and be patient and not sinfully take matters into my own hands. And Joseph is a great example of that. Okay. Um, it's easy a lot of times when people hate us in life to start to assume, I wonder if God hates me. we got all the right theology here, but there can be a visceral response in our heart. When people falsely accuse us, I wonder if I'm being accused by God in the courtroom of heaven. When people forget us and don't keep their promises, it can feel like God's forgotten me. Can it not? Now, um, 
Just be honest with yourself for a second. Where in your life, either presently, or maybe you're, maybe you're not there presently, but go back you know, to the most recent time. Where have you felt hated, accused, forgotten at the human level? That shouldn't be that hard. But then, get really honest with yourself for a second. Where did it start to kind of slip over into my spiritual life? Even though I know all the right answers, I could have made an A-plus on the theology exam, but it felt like I was forgotten by God. I felt far from God. I felt like God was not near. Okay? I mean, at least at this point, Joseph's in a dungeon. But the story doesn't end in a dungeon. Okay? Chapter 41. Now, it happened at the end of two full years. We can get impatient when we have to wait two full hours or days or weeks or months, but two full years of just in the dungeon waiting forgotten. Now, it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep, and he dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servant, and he put me in the confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I, and each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So, two years forgotten in the dungeon. And then literally, in a matter of moments, at this point, Egypt was the world's superpower. Pharaoh would have been one of, if not the, most powerful men on the entire planet. And Joseph is a forgotten Hebrew youth in a dungeon who hadn't shaved in a long time. And the next thing you know, he's standing with an audience before the greatest man on planet Earth. That's the power that God has to reverse our fortunes and our destinies whenever, however he wants to. So no matter how hard and painful your life feels and the deck feels stacked against you, it doesn't matter. If God's on your side, there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to worry about. It doesn't matter what the scoreboard seems to say if God's on your side. You will win in the end. You probably won't win in the timing that you want to win. You probably won't win in the exact way that you want to win. But guys, none of us are going to get to heaven and look back on the story that God wrote for us and say, ah, it's okay. Right? None of us are going to say, ah, it balances out. 
the good and the evil, they kind of balance out 50-50. There's going to be a sense of perfection. And all the pain, I can praise God for now because it was worth it because of how it led to and was interwoven with all the glorious things that he was trying to do in and through and for me. Let's keep going uh, down to verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God. And God will quickly bring it about. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discern and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the proposed the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this and whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. I mean, literally in a matter of moments, he goes from being a forgotten slave in a dungeon to the second most powerful man on planet Earth. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants it. And confidence in that can keep our spirits hopeful even while we suffer, even while we feel forgotten. Okay, You know, James chapter 4, verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 5 talk about humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. Right? What's the proper time? I don't know. <laughs> Neither do you. <laughs> That's part of where faith comes in. That's part of where the humility comes in that says, I'm willing to suffer, to be forgotten, to be falsely accused, whatever, to be hated, as long as it takes, God, because I trust your end game. Even if I don't understand all the steps along the way. It's freeing. It's empowering. Now, Maybe Satan's greatest tactic of all time is to try to get us to live in such a way where we make all of our decisions based on the evidence that we can see, touch, taste, feel, hear with our five senses. Because oftentimes the circumstances that we're living in seem to be screaming at us, God doesn't love you. God has forgotten you. You are still accused and condemned in the cosmic courtroom of the universe and there's no hope for you. 
And if you think Joseph's story is bad, okay, there's at least one story that's worse. The worst tragedy of all time. The cross. I mean, think about the Lord Jesus. His own Jewish brothers turn him over to arrest. How much they hated him. The physical beating that he suffered from his brother men. And then to be falsely accused in the kangaroo court. Obvious falsely accused in every single way because he was sinlessly perfect. Even Pilate said the guy's innocent. Okay? And then he was forgotten. Not just by most of his friends, right? Only John and a couple of the women actually went all the way to the cross with him. But here's where it ought to get really sobering and uplifting for us at the exact same moment. On the cross, in a very real sense, Christ and his humanity experienced the true forgottenness of the Father. He didn't even feel close enough to him to address him as Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the Father was silent. And he was forgotten. Because at that moment, he was suffering the wrath of God for all the sins of all God's people. And then a few days later, he rose again to prove that it worked. And so guys, in our worst moments where we really feel forgotten, not just by our friends, but by God, if we're in Christ, the truth that we have to preach to ourselves against all the circumstantial evidence is, God forgot Christ in my place. Therefore, he'll never forget me no matter what it feels like in my present circumstances. And that ought to give us all the hope we need to keep living humbly and faithfully. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We don't love you near as much as we should. We only love you because you first loved us. I pray for myself. I pray for everybody here in this. Would you grow our faith our real practical faith in you, in your goodness, in your power, in your love, in your sovereignty, and would it translate into daily humility and faithfulness no matter what we face. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. Thank you.